0: everybody, this is Nurse Mo and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing podcast. If things sound a little weird to your ears today, that's because I am recording this on a different device because I'm having some technical issues with my microphone and didn't want to delay getting this podcast out while I wait for a replacement part to arrive. So I'm hoping that my editor, Tim at thepodcastingguy.com, who is amazing, by the way, if you are into podcasting and need help. I'm hoping that Tim can make this sound a little better, but the point will be the content is going to be awesome. So focus on that and don't hate me for my awful microphone today. I just didn't want there to be a, a big gap in between episodes. So today what we're talking about is ventilator Weaning. And I've said this about 10 times already because I've tried to record this in so many different ways, trying to figure out what was going on with my microphone. So I'm hoping to make this the best take yet. So, one of the things I want to really talk to you about with ventilator weaning is that it is something that you start working on immediately when your patient is intubated. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about the patient that's intubated for surgery and going to be intubated overnight for rest. A lot of surgeons like to rest their patients overnight on the vent. I'm talking about the patient who comes in to the emergency room, for example, and is in respiratory distress. Maybe they have a pneumonia and they need to be intubated. We're going to start actually the process of vent weaning on this patient right away. So when you first intubate a patient who is in respiratory distress, you're going to have them on 100% FIO2. And then about 30, 45, 60 minutes later, you'll get a blood gas. And based off what you learned from that, you'll start weaning down the oxygen. So. You've already started weaning your ventilated patient. Good job. But let's talk about a few days later. Your patient with the pneumonia, maybe they're starting to look a little better, and you really want to push them toward wellness, right? You really want to get that tube out. So when you're looking at extubating and weaning the vent, you're more or less looking at about five different global things that you'll. Take into account overall when you're looking at this patient and getting that gut feeling that they're ready or not ready. And when I say gut feeling, I'm not saying that it isn't based on science and data, but it's one of those things that you will you'll assimilate all this information all at once, kind of all at the same time so that it feels like intuition, but really you are applying your knowledge and your experience. So those five main things are going to be, how much oxygen are they on? This is their FiO2. How much PEEP are they on? What does their chest X-ray look like? Is their lung condition, if that was the reason they were intubated, and we'll talk about that in a minute, But if they were intubated for a lung condition, is it improving? You want to look at what mode they're on with the ventilator. Is it one that's more ventilator driven, like PRVC, or one that's more patient driven, like CPAP? And then you also want to look at the patient's neuro status can they cough? Do they have a gag reflex? Do they open their eyes, follow commands, move purposefully? So let's go back through each of these in a little bit more detail. So when we're looking at the FiO2, typically what we want is the FiO2 to be less than 50%. Remember, room air is 21% FiO2. So anything below 50 is technically extubatable. My comfort zone, personally, is if they're closer to 35%, but this will be a decision that the MD will arise to based on a lot of different factors, and the FiO2 is part of that. So definitely, it needs to be below 50%. How much PEEP are they on? So if you remember from your respiratory lectures back in nursing school, or maybe you're in nursing school right now, PEEP is your positive end expiratory pressure. And I'm not going to go into a whole big thing about that. We could spend an entire hour talking about PEEP, maybe three hours talking about PEEP. But the quick takeaway is that PEEP is going to help keep pressure in the lungs at the end of expiration and help keep the alveoli open, and improve gas exchange. PEEP levels are typically for weaning. What you're looking at is your goal, five to eight. I've seen PEEPs as high as 22. I believe in ARDS protocol, they can go up to 24. That is some crazy high PEEP, and it is, to me, pretty scary stuff. So you're looking at lower ends of PEEP for your patient, if they are extubated for a lung problem like a pneumonia or pulmonary edema or ARDS or something like that, you're going to look at the chest x-ray from that morning and look at it, compare it to the ones from previous days and see if it is improving. Again, um, their neurostatus, you want to know if they can protect their airway is the main thing. If they're not coughing and not gagging when you deep suction them, try to find out why. Did they have a neuro insult? Are they on too much sedation? Um, Is their pH totally out of control? So that's going to be part of the clinical picture as well. And then again, that mode of the ventilator we talked about, something vent driven or something patient driven. You're also looking for your patient able to take spontaneous breaths. So let's say the vent is set at 12 or 14 or 18 breaths per minute, and they are not breathing above it ever at all, even with sedation turned down. You're going to question their ability to breathe spontaneously. But let's say you've got the vent rate set at 16 or something and you notice that they're breathing 24. Well, some of those breaths, the ones above the 16, they're initiating on their own. So they do have some spontaneous breathing going on. So now let's talk about some of the problems when a patient is on event and why it's so crucial that we get them off of it as soon as possible. There's a lot of deconditioning that happens when a patient is on a ventilator. There is mental deconditioning. ICU delirium is a very real and very horrifying thing. I would like to recommend a great website, icudelirium.org, which has a ton of information about this and its long-term detrimental effects and steps we can take to avoid it. And one of those steps we're going to talk about here, which is lessening sedation and early mobility and getting people off ventilators. There's a lot of nutritional deficiencies if patients are on a vent and tube feedings are not started or are delayed for any reason. And a lot of times it's a legit reason. Like maybe they've had a a gastric surgery and they can't be given any nutrition. Nutritional deficiencies are going to weaken the patient, decondition the patient. That lack of mobility when a patient is on a ventilator is going to cause physical deconditioning. The lungs aren't working on their own, meaning those respiratory muscles are not working on their own. They decondition very quickly as well. You can have patients that are overly sedated, which is going to exacerbate any deconditioning. So our goals with weaning the vent and managing a patient on a vent is to optimize their condition. So, you know, as a new nurse, when you're just so focused on getting through your shift without hurting anyone, staying on top of your meds, staying on top of your charting, your turns, your oral care, your this, your that, it's often hard to think about what's the next step for this patient. But if you start thinking with the mindset of you're not just implementing the orders that are in place, but instead assertively and mindfully pushing your patient toward wellness, you really start to think about problem solving in the context of how can I optimize this patient's condition and get them better? And in the case of a patient on a ventilator, how can I help get them off this vent sooner? So one of the things we want to do with this, of course, is we're going to work on addressing the underlying condition. You know, if there's an infection, making sure that they're on their correct antibiotics and that they're getting those on time in a timely manner. If I've got, you know, an antibiotic due at nine and I've got Something else, do a non antibiotic at nine, and I can't run them together. And one of them's going to have to be late. Well, guess which one I'm going to give absolutely on time every time? It's going to be the antibiotic. So we're going to take care of that underlying infection if there is one, if they're fluid overloaded, are they auto-diuresing, meaning are they making enough urine that they're going to clear this extra fluid out on their own, or do they need a little extra help? And that's when you might have a discussion with the MD about a medication to diurese them if their kidneys can handle it, or are they a dialysis patient and the nephrologist comes by and you discuss the frequency of their dialysis or any of those things. You also want to make sure that their pH is getting corrected. If they have acid base derangements, you want to address those. And these will be things that are done in coordination, obviously, with your MD colleagues. You want to increase oxygen demand, and there's things that, as the nurse, that you can do to decrease their oxygen demand. You know, fever is going to increase it. Shivering is going to increase it. So try to keep your patients normothermic. If they're anxious, can you give them something for anxiety? Can you adjust their sedation appropriately? Things like that. Um, if they are having a ton of secretions in their lungs coming out of the ET tube, you can talk with your respiratory therapist about appropriate suctioning. You know, you don't want to over suction because that can cause irritation, but you do want to suction enough that you get that stuff out of there. The respiratory therapists have a whole toolbox of physiotherapy things that they can do with patients. We've got these beds that kind of thump the patient's back. And that helps loosen up secretions. If the patient's overly dry and does not have enough fluid on board, you know, fluids can help loosen up secretions, things like that. So you want to talk to your respiratory therapist and your MDs about the sputum control, basically, in your patients. And I've seen some patients have to get bronchoscopies. Maybe they've got mucus plugs. The physician can go in there with the scope and get those things out. So you want to address sputum. You want to address sedation. So the way that we address sedation in my ICU and in many, many ICUs is by going by the Ramsey agitation and sedation scale. And we call this the RAS score. And the RAS score goes from, I want to say positive four all the way down to negative five, I do believe. And you basically want to have your patient, your goal is to have them what we call perfectly sedated, right around a negative one or a negative two. So a patient at the high end of that spectrum at a positive four is your combative patient. This is the patient that you're calling the code gray on because they are in immediate danger to staff or themselves or visitors or family or whoever's at the bedside. Your positive three patient is your pretty darn agitated patient. They are aggressively pulling on their ET tube or reaching for it, hopefully you've got them appropriately restrained, Um, catheters, other invasive devices, pick lines, central lines, whatever, they are a danger to themselves in that regard, that they're going to remove medically necessary equipment. Your positive two patient is your agitated patient who is fighting the vent, um, Disynchronous with the vent you 'll hear a lot of vent alarms going off their movements are frequent they 're not super purposeful. they might not be reaching strongly for their et tube, but maybe they're flailing about enough that they could dislodge things. even patients shaking their heads side to side a lot can dislodge the et tube um, tubing itself, which is dangerous. Your positive one patient is your restless patient they 're not really. Vigorous with their restlessness, but they look really uncomfortable, really anxious. Maybe they're a little tachypnic and a little tachycardic. Maybe they, you know, they open their eyes and they look afraid, things like that. Your zero patient is alert and calm. That's you and me right now as we are listening to this podcast. Your negative one patient, now we're going on the downward side of the scale, is drowsy. They will open their eyes to voice and have eye contact for greater than 10 seconds. And then your negative two patient is kind of like your lightly sedated patient. This is what we call the sweet spot. They'll awaken to voice. They will look you in the eye. They have eye contact. They can follow commands, but it's not sustained. They'll probably drift back off to la-la land um, before 10 seconds goes by. If you stimulate them again, they'll open their eyes again, but then they go right back to their happy place. Negative three would be considered moderate sedation. The patient um, might move um, a little bit to voice, but they're not opening their eyes. They might still follow some commands, but probably not, but they're going to move in response to your voice. Um, if they do open their eyes, there's no eye contact, okay? They're just opening and then closing them again without tracking or looking into your eyes and following your movements. For your patient at a negative four level on the RAS scale, they have no response to voice but they will move or maybe open their eyes to physical stimulation. And it has to usually be pretty vigorous physical stimulation, something not super pleasant. And then your negative five is your unarousable patient. They have absolutely no movement, no eye opening to voice or aggressive physical stimulation. And when we talk about aggressive physical stimulation, we're talking about trying to elicit response to pain, which I always hate doing. And I apologize to the patient as I'm doing it. Um, that is a um, taking something like a pen across their nail bed and pressing down or giving that trapezius muscle a little bit of a squeeze or a sternal rub. So Those are the kinds of the things on the scale of the the Ramsey agitation and sedation scale. And your goal is to have your patient around a negative two, though I have lots of times seen patients at zero who are alert and calm and doing a crossword puzzle while they're on the ventilator, which is amazing. But that's not everyone, and it certainly would not be me. Another thing that we can do to optimize our patient's condition is keep their mobility going or increase their mobility if they have been in bed for days and days. So one of the things we've been doing in my ICU is we have a dedicated physical therapist who works only with the vented patients and they come around with the respiratory therapist and mobilize vented patients, whether this is sitting them up on the edge of the bed getting them up into the chair for a little bit. A couple of times I've seen them walking vented patients. The trick with walking a vented patient is that you have to have one who's pretty much not on sedation, and it's rare to find a patient who can manage and handle being on a vent without sedation, so I don't see that as often, but I do know that it is something that is being explored out there in the critical care world with pretty great results. And then, of course, you want to optimize nutrition, early nutrition. So if their gut can take it, get those trickle feeds started and advance the tube feeding as able. If their gut can't take it and they need to be on TPN, you can advocate for that. Do note that TPN does have a lot of things you have to be careful and watch out for. And we can talk about that in another podcast as well. So those are some of the things you're going to do to optimize their condition, and now we're going to look at how do we go about actually, in the moment, weaning your patient and assessing their readiness to be extubated. So one of the things that you'll be doing with your respiratory therapist is monitoring how much... Oxygen and peep and things like that that your patient actually needs. In some institutions, this is driven by the MD. In others, there is protocol for the respiratory therapist to manage the vent. And I've even heard that in some places, the nurse manages the vent. I am always super thankful that our respiratory therapists manage our vents because they are such experts in what they do, and I rely on their expertise all the time. So, Over the course of the few days, you've had this patient with the pneumonia and their oxygen saturation levels are great. And you're going to try to wean down the FiO2 or the PEEP or both while maintaining good oxygen, um, no signs of respiratory distress or compromise in any way. And then every day you're going to do what is called a spontaneous awakening trial, possibly with a spontaneous breathing trial on top of that. So let's talk a little bit about what that is. So spontaneous awakening trial, SAT, and spontaneous breathing trial, SBT. We'll often just say SAT, SBT together because they do go hand in hand So every day, and I think in our ICU we're doing it twice a day, we are going to do a spontaneous awakening trial. And this is basically a sedation vacation. Sedative use in patients causes increased ICU delirium. And even if you're not going to be extubating your patient, you know they're not going to be extubated that day, you can still do an awakening trial because part of this is getting them on the least amount of sedation as possible that they need to be safe and comfortable. But first, we're going to do a little safety screen to make sure that our patient is appropriate for a spontaneous awakening trial. So this would be your patient that is not actively having seizures, Okay, a lot of times if patients are actively having seizures, they will be on a sedative to prevent seizure, and you obviously would not stop that because it would put them in more danger. So no active seizures and not currently going through alcohol withdrawal. Big risk for seizures with alcohol withdrawal as well. You want to make sure that they're not overly agitated, they're, they're definitely not on any paralytics. You would never, ever take the sedation off a paralyzed a chemically paralyzed patient because that would be pretty much one of the most cruel things you could do to wake up a patient and have them be paralyzed can you imagine the terror that they would feel so no paralytics on board we use paralytics sometimes and hypothermia when we're cooling a patient and they're shivering we don't want them to shiver Because shivering will increase oxygen demands, deplete glucose, and other things. And we'll also use it, I've seen it used a couple of times, in severe uh, status asthmaticus. So definitely, if they're on a paralytic, they are excluded from your spontaneous awakening trial. You want to make sure that their heart is good, there's no ischemia going on, and that their intracranial pressure is a okay. If you would like a refresher on intracranial pressure, go to straightanursingstudent.com and in the search bar at the very bottom right of the page, check out, um, type in ICP and you'll probably get at least a couple of resources for that. So let's say we are going to, our patient meets the safety screen criteria, that is great, and we are going to now turn off all sedation, so we're going to turn off their uh, continuous infusions of propofol or fentanyl over or whatever we're using and see how they do. If they fail, they will have shown these signs or some of these signs. Increased anxiety, agitation or pain, a respiratory rate greater than like 35-ish, uh, an O2 saturation below 88% in most cases, um, respiratory distress. You're going to look for increased work of breathing. Um, again, that tachypnea, that drop in O2 sats, um, their skin signs, all of those things. And then any cardiac arrhythmias. So you're going to be watching this patient on the monitor. So if they exhibit Any of those things, especially more than a couple, you're going to consider their SAT failed. It doesn't mean they are a failure. It just means today the SAT did not go well and they're not ready, but you're not going to crank their sedation back up to where it was. Remember, one of our goals is to get the sedation as low as possible for this patient to be comfortable and safe. So you'll restart your sedatives at half the prior dose. If they pass their spontaneous awakening trial, then we're going to go on and do a safety screen for the other part, the spontaneous breathing trial. And for this, you would want your patient to show no overt signs of agitation. They could maybe be a plus one, but a plus two or three, definitely you're not going to continue. You want to, again, have that oxygen saturation level above or equal to about 88%. The FiO2 is, again, going to be 50 or below. The PEEP below eight. And again, no heart issues, no ischemia with the heart. You want to make sure they're not on vasopressors. They don't want to be, you don't want to aggressively extubate someone who is requiring vasopressor support because they're hemodynamically unstable. And you want to make sure that they can take breaths on their own, that they're breathing above the vent and can do that. So you'll perform your spontaneous breathing trial and where I work, what we do is we switch the patient from a a mode on the ventilator where the ventilator is doing the work to a mode on the ventilator where the patient is initiating the breaths. And for us, that's usually the CPAP mode with a little bit of um, pressure support to help them overcome the pressure of the ET tube. If you try to breathe through a straw, you'll notice that it's very, very difficult breathing through an ET tube. is like breathing through a big straw. So we give them a little extra support to compensate for that. But we are considering the CPAP trial to be their effort. And we're going to let them hopefully hang out on CPAP for about half an hour. And if they do well, then we say that they've passed their spontaneous breathing trial, and we speak to the MD about possible extubation. In some cases, the MD will want to see the patient on CPAP for more than half an hour. They'll maybe want to say, okay, leave them on CPAP until noon. Let's see how they do, and then we'll pull the tube. So they may want them on it for a few hours. You know, Sometimes patients will be on CPAP for overnight or a day before they're extubated, but we're always, always pushing the patient towards that that wellness and that extubation. Now, let's say it's time to extubate your patient. So you're going to get your respiratory therapist. In some institutions, it's the doc that does the extubation. I just learned that recently. But where I work, it's the nurse and the respiratory therapist. If it's gonna be iffy and I think, ooh, this, I don't know how they're gonna do, I'll make sure I do it when they, I know the MDs are close by on the unit. But otherwise, um, it's you and the respiratory therapist. The respiratory therapist is gonna take whatever ET tube holder off their face I will clean their mouth, will suction way deep back in the throat to get any secretions off the top of that ET tube cuff because you don't want those secretions dropping down into the lungs. And before I pull the tube and their off sedation and they can hear me and follow my commands and know what I'm talking about, I will tell them, we're going to pull this tube out of your throat. Your job is to cough and keep your airway clear and take slow, deep breaths. You are going to want to talk because I'm sure you have a lot to say after having this tube down your throat for so many days. But your throat is going to be pretty sore and I don't want you to irritate it further and cause swelling. So whispers only for the first couple of hours. I used to try to tell patients not to talk at all for the first hour. And as soon as the tube came out, they would talk. So now I just say whispers only, and that usually works just fine because their throats are sore, and whispering seems to be okay for most people. If you're super nervous about airway swelling post extubation, like maybe they've been extubated and reintubated a couple of times because of difficulties after extubation, then I would definitely tell that patient no talking. Okay, let's just rest your throat for a little while. So the respiratory therapist is going to take down the ET tube cuff. The patient's immediately going to start coughing because those secretions, if there are any there, are going to kind of dribble down and then they're going to pull the ET tube. If you've got an OG tube in place that comes out at the same time, You'll have turned off the tube feed, hopefully prior to this, to avoid risks of aspiration. And you'll throw the patient most likely on two to four liters nasal cannula, maybe an oxy mask or a mask if you think that they're going to need the extra support. But for the most part, most patients that I've worked with, a few liters nasal cannula, and you see how they do. Now you're going to stay close by for that first Half hour or so. I usually stay in the room for five to ten minutes with the patient after it helps them feel calm. You can keep a close eye on them. And I just try to convey uh, an attitude of calmness because they might be very anxious, worried that they're going to have to be reintubated or not be able to breathe well. So I just stay in the room. I go on about my business. And just keep things very calm and copacetic. So, what you're watching for is you want to watch for any respiratory compromise, obviously, any market drops in O2 saturation levels, increased work of breathing, increased respiratory rate. Um, an inability to handle their secretions. You want them to be able to cough up their secretions and get them out. Most people can do this. Um, You can show them how to use the yank hour to suction their mouth themselves. Usually people find that more comfortable than you shoving it in there. Um, If they cannot handle their secretions adequately, you may need to NT suction them where you take that uh, suction catheter up through the nares, down into the uh, back of the throat and suction them that way. It's super unpleasant. One of my least favorite things to do because I don't like to do unpleasant things to people. Um, but for the most part, most people can cough up their secretions. And if they're not going to be able to, you kind of know that ahead of time based on maybe their neurostatus or... Um, how they were before they were intubated, etc. You're also looking for changes in level of consciousness and any strider or wheezing. If the patient develops strider, that's a sign of like spasm. You could give some racemic epi, is usually the typical treatment. Or um, if they're wheezing, maybe the respiratory therapist can give them a breathing treatment things like that. So you're going to watch for all of those things. But for the most part, your patient hopefully is going to do just fine. They'll start out on a few liters nasal cannula, and then you can wean them down to a couple liters, and then voila, room air, and they're doing amazing. Now, these obviously, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes patients do need to be re For those patients, you kind of know which ones they might be just depending on their whole clinical picture. So I always have an extra an intubation tray kind of close by just in case for good karma. And then if I don't need it, I don't need it. So, But it's nice to have it there. So that is in a nutshell, a very small nutshell, what goes on with ventilator weaning and how you go through that on a daily basis with Your patient with your assessment of their readiness to extubate and just always working on optimizing their condition and getting them back to a place of wellness. So, I hope that was helpful to you. And again, I apologize for the reduced sound quality and the problems that my microphone is having, but I hope to get that fixed before our next episode. And I would love to hear from you guys. So if you have a topic you'd love to hear about on the podcast, reach out to me on the website at straightynursingstudent.com. There's a contact form there, or you can email me at mo at straightynursingstudent.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you on that. And then if you could do me a huge favor, and if you like this podcast, rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever you use, it helps us show up in the ranking so that if somebody goes on to iTunes, for instance, and just types in nursing, this will show up and it can help them like it has maybe helped you. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. I think I have another respiratory podcast planned for the next episode. I'll think about it. I feel like we've done a ton of respiratory lately, but um, maybe it's maybe we're just in respiratory mode right now in my brain. But it's possibly another respiratory lecture based off one of my most popular blog post. So if you're interested in that, check back in a couple weeks for the next episode of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Thanks again. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.